Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. This Midnight Myth has been on my mind for quite a while. I'm very excited. I'm delving into some of the most fanboy fan things that I have and talking about a huge, massive subject one that a lot of people are talking about and really excited to bring a midnight myth meditation to Star Wars. So big subject, what are we going to talk about in Star Wars? Specifically, we want to hone in on season one of Ahsoka. We want to talk about what happened in season one, the character Ahsoka, and then from there, I'm hopeful that we will draw a conversation about what Star Wars is doing now, what matters, does it even matter? Should we be analyzing Star Wars to the the degree that which we are and maybe what we think Star Wars will mean going forward? Because undoubtedly, Star Wars has changed. It's not the same thing that it was. It, for a long time, were, were the original trilogy, those three movies, And then there were books and comic books and video games, but all of that was considered the extended universe that has now been decanoned and called Legends. So none of that, while was inspired by and adjacent to Star Wars, none of that was or is now, quote unquote, Star Wars. Famously, Star Wars was purchased by um, Disney 
pardon me, Lucasfilm was purchased by Disney, which brought Star Wars. And we are in a new era. We've had five, no, six new movies, a ton of television shows, and a ton of video games. So we're going to talk about all things Star Wars through the lens of Ahsoka. I'm going to do my best to keep my inner child fanboy in check because no matter where we go in this conversation, I have to go on the record that I love Star Wars. I'm going to support everything Star Wars that I can support. I, If I were playing video games, which I don't really do anymore just because it doesn't fit in my life, I would be playing the Fallen Order video games because I played the first one and loved them. Just hard to play big RPGs when you have a two-year-old running around. So I'm just so excited to do this, to dive into this, to talk about Star Wars. Star Wars means so much to me, and it means so much to Laurel. Can I just say, though, if you and I ever kept our inner child in check, there would be no Midnight Myth. None of this would ever have happened. So you are absolutely free to invite your inner child to this conversation. Okay, that's fair. That is absolutely fair. Well, I guess what I mean by that is I just don't want to fanboy gush. I want to actually lend a, hopefully, a, a good voice to the Star Wars conversations that are happening um, in homes, in digital spaces, in among fans, etc. I've recently connected to a lot of Star Wars fans on Twitter and a lot of positive Star Wars fans on Twitter, or I'm sorry, X, I guess is what it's called now. Um, so, because there are some dark things in Star Wars fandom that we are obviously not going to touch in and be a part of. But, well, that being said, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and start talking some Ahsoka uh, but first, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, we would just love to hear from you. We are on social media. We're on the app formerly known as Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And we would just love if you wanted to drop a line, say hi, tell us how we're doing. You can also leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you are also subscribed to our sister and brother shows. If this is the father, then our sister is Sleep and Sorcery and our brother is the Wheel of Ka. I'm just putting this into the, the realm of the Mortis gods here. So. I see what you did there and I love it. Because <laughs> we're going to talk about Ahsoka, even though I would maybe consider Midnight Myth a mother. But uh, yeah, Fair. check out our other podcasts. So Wheel of Ka is Derek and Steve discussing the Dark Tower and Stephen King's entire writing of from the lens of Dark Tower fans. And then Sleep and Sorcery is my side podcast where I write original sleep stories inspired by folklore and fantasy. So if you have trouble sleeping and you enjoy the magical and mystical, check me out over there. Um, that's pretty much it for me. Great. Uh, Wheel of Ka fans, we owe you an episode. Uh, just want to apologize. We haven't gotten our schedules to line up to record it. I got stick. Steve got sick. The Phillies made it to the playoffs and are just destroying everybody. So we just haven't found a, a time that works where we're not ill or there isn't a Phillies game on. So we will get an episode. We're talking about finding when we're going to put that on the books, which should be very shortly. We're going to be talking about misery. So if you haven't read misery and want to pick it up, there's still a little bit of time to catch up, read it, and then join us at the wheel of car. Plenty of time to get miserable. So how to recap Ahsoka. Ahsoka is a character that came out of the uh, Star Wars animated show Clone Wars. Actually, it was originally an animated movie produced by Lucasfilm, and she is the 
apprentice or Padawan of Anakin Skywalker. The story of the Clone Wars is very long. It's a lot of seasons, but it ultimately ends with Ahsoka leaving the Jedi Order right before Order 66 happens, which massacres all the Jedi, and Anakin falls to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader, something that Ahsoka 100% blames herself for happening. She believes that if she were only there and only with Anakin, he may not have fallen to the dark side. Ahsoka's story then picks up in another animated TV show, this is 100% under Disney, called Star Wars Rebels. She's codenamed Fulcrum, she's coordinating different rebel cells during the Galactic Empire, and she is um, helping to organize and plan and execute the rebellion. In it, she confronts Vader, and that's where she meets the main characters of this show, because Ahsoka is very much, to me, a live-action sequel to Rebels. If there is anything to say, that it's directly connected to. That's because we have Harrison Duell, we have Ezra Bridges, we have Sabine, um, we have Hera's son with Kanan, who is the Jedi that dies in Rebels, um, named Jason. And so this really kind of takes place after the Galactic Empire's collapsed, during the era of the New Republic, and Ahsoka comes back and she is searching for Grand Admiral Thrawn, who is a last surviving Grand Admiral, a brilliant tactician, who's in another galaxy with trapped there with Ezra. Grand Admiral Thrawn originated in the Legends from a book series called Heir to the Empire, which is decanonized, but was the main antagonist in Rebels, so that put him into canon. And Rebels ends with Ezra and Thrawn going to this other galaxy, traveling with space hyperspace force-sensitive whales called the Purgle. Ahsoka reunites with with Sabine and Hera. We learn that Sabine has been training and not so well as a Jedi. And we meet two new characters, Balin and Shin, who are these mercenary, darkish Jedis that sometimes touch the light side of the Force. Balin was there for Order 66 and was a Jedi. Shin is his apprentice. And they are mercenaries trying to help get Thrawn back to the galaxy, in which they travel to this very... Uh, force-centric planet in another galaxy where the hyperspace whales go to die. And there we find Thrawn rebuilding his empire, turning the remaining troops that he had into a military theocratic cult, partnering with Dathomirian Night Sisters. These are force witches that show up a lot throughout the um, Clone Wars, then in Rebels, nope, by Rebels they're gone, sorry, in the Clone Wars that are now seem to have originated from this other galaxy. There we learn that Balin and Shin have ulterior motives, but we're not really sure. They split, and Balin seems to be being called by some ancient power, and we have Sabine, Ezra, and Ahsoka teaming up again, and they are trying to stop Thrawn's return, which they are ultimately, they do fail. The very end of it is Ezra escaping on Thrawn's ship, Sabine and Ahsoka trapped on this in this other galaxy without a ship and Thrawn having returned to the galaxy far, far away, seemingly to resurrect the Empire. Lots of other things happen. There's a lot of context and lore that gets fleshed out from what I like to call the Dave Fellini universe, which is he is the writer and showrunner, but there in a nutshell, that's how we got to where we're at now in this story. And I just want to know, Laurel, you had not watched Clone Wars and not watched Rebels. I had certainly talked to you about them quite a bit. 
and you are certainly familiar. You probably caught an episode here and there while I was watching them, but you're relatively new to the character Ahsoka. I want to know, Laurel, how did this show make you feel? The show, I generally on the surface, purely enjoyed. I, I really did have a good time watching Ahsoka. And like you said, you know, I had caught a few episodes of Clone Wars, haven't watched any Rebels, but you also pulled me aside and said like, here are some things I think you should see in this Clone Wars series that would land and be meaningful with you. And I think would also be important to understanding what Star Wars is doing now. So you showed me the arc with the Mortis gods and you've shown me a couple of those episodes here and there, and you have relayed enough information about the character Ahsoka that I wasn't going in totally blind. And so one of the criticisms that I was hearing from all sides of the show was that this was the live action season five of Rebels. And so if you were coming in totally blind, you wouldn't know what was going on. You wouldn't know who these characters are and therefore the show would not be for you. And I merit that criticism. Like I am not someone who watched those shows, but I had enough of a baseline that I felt comfortable going in. But I do feel like, yeah, I'm sure it alienated some people. But again, it was, I think, quite forthcoming with the fact that that was the perspective that it was taking. So it's not a criticism that I want to spend a ton of time like really dwelling on. My personal experience with it was that the thing I crave most from the Star Wars universe is myth and symbol and these deep unconscious mythological yearnings that I thought this show got closer to than most of what Star Wars has been putting out aside from maybe The Last Jedi. So I thought it really spoke to me. I definitely had my quibbles with it. There are some things that I would love to have seen that I didn't see or, you know, that that didn't quite work for me. But overall, I was really pleased with it. And it, it made me excited about the idea of a, a kind of voice, a, a generational voice coming into Star Wars like Dave Filoni, who has a real point of view and is able to really powerfully capture the mythological unconscious of Star Wars. Yeah, it's worth fleshing out a little bit who Dave Filoni is. Um, he is pretty much the man in Star Wars right now. He is producing the Star Wars content that gets the least amount of scrutiny, which is a feat because Star Wars fans are heavy in Savage. scrutinizing yeah. Star Wars. So he worked for George Lucas and worked in Lucasfilm, and very much Ahsoka is his character. It's the character that he wanted to tell the story of via the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars is considered the animated show, some of, if not the best post-original trilogy content. Rebels has not just fans, super fans. There are super fans of Rebels. Personally, I like Clone Wars a little bit better than Rebels, just my opinion, but I did think Rebels was largely a triumph. And he is kind of responsible and managing and running the story of what people are now calling the Mandoverse, the time between when the uh, Empire had fallen, the New Republic rises, and before the rise of the First Order. So he is really in charge of these stories, and Ahsoka is his character, and this is his show. I have to just fully admit, I'm an Ahsoka superfan. I think Ahsoka is the best Star Wars character since the original trilogy ended. No one's going to replace Han, Luke, Leia, Chewie, Darth Vader, the Emperor, 
those are going to be my favorite characters. Lando, C-3PO, R2-D4, like those are always going to be my favorite characters. Um, and no other Star Wars character can ever really take them down for me. I just, I'm an original trilogy guy. That being stated, since the end of that, there is no character I've been more invested in following than Ahsoka. I think Ahsoka breathes fresh air to the Star Wars story. Through Ahsoka in the Clone Wars, we get to see why the Jedi fell, not just how. In The Revenge of the Sith, uh, we see how they fall, but we don't see why. And we see that the Jedi Order, as Luke talks about in The Last Jedi, really didn't deserve to be in power anymore. It had lost sight of what it meant to be the guardians of the Force and the protectors of peace. There is an intense conflict existing in being war generals and also religious monks, something that I do want to talk about today. And so that conflict is at the heart of Ahsoka's character. It's why she is not a Jedi at the end of Order 66. It's why she leaves the Order. And she still is a steward of the light side of the Force and is against fascism and space Nazis. And so her narrative has sustained my Star Wars appetite more so than any other new Star Wars content that has come out, all of which I have love for, nothing I have hate for. Um, and seeing it in live action, I just adored every second of it and just feel so lucky that I get to see the evolution of one of my favorite characters, now a fully formed adult to see from childhood to adolescence to early adult, adulthood to adulthood, to see this character become what she needs to be, which is a Jedi. And she becomes the Jedi she was meant to be and gets to reconcile the conflict and the trauma of wartime monk and a, a, a guardian of peace and a destroyer of armies. And she gets to reconcile that conflict and I really enjoyed it. That being stated, there were certainly things about the show that I think had some kinks. And my experience of Dave Fellini's shows is season ones are never the best. It's true of Clone Wars, it's true of Rebels. He's a guy that needs a little bit of warm up to really kind of knock it out of the park. And I think this show had some incredibly high highs and I think it had some, okay, that episode was a little dull. For example, I wasn't super into the finale. And I had some reasons for that. I feel like they wasted the zombie troopers. Zombie troopers should be its own episode. That should push our heroes to the brink of almost falling apart, and they overcome them. Instead, how did they defeat the zombie troopers? They closed doors. It just didn't seem like, it seemed like it was bloated in that respect. Um, I'm always a big fan of watching different characters and how they use their lightsabers. I'm a lightsaberist. I'm always going to like Star Wars content that uses a lot of lightsabers versus the ones that use less lightsabers. That's just who I am. And I really like seeing the fighting styles in particular of Balin and Ahsoka and their fights and how Balin's fighting style was almost like a really well-trained medieval knight with just using raw muscle and emotion versus Ahsoka's way more... Uh, nuanced and poetic, more like samurai style. And so I really love those fights. I love the show. I can't wait to see more. I hope there's a season two. 
I think there is so many great stories. You know, my one super criticism of the show, the one thing that I find, I found a little inexcusable, was by far and away, the two most interesting new characters in Ahsoka were Balin and Shin, and they were written out of the finale for the most part. And that really bummed me out. And it really bummed me out because the actor, Ray Stevenson, was not, is not gonna be able to play this part anymore because uh, tragically, he passed away. I have been a fan of Ray Stevenson since he played Titus Pullo in Rome. He's been one of my favorite actors, an actor that I follow everything that he does. And the thing that he can do that I've never seen anyone do quite as well is balance, ferocity, and gentleness. He does it as Titus Pullo in Rome, who is a lovable, fun-loving Roman soldier who has no problem slaughtering and ripping the hearts of his enemies out on the battlefield. And he does it here with Balin, who is a vicious mercenary, something in between a Jedi and a Sith, who knows what he is, someone who can bat, but then he can touch the light side of the force and keeps his word and has a gentle kindness to Shin and Sabine that he shows in this that I thought was so unique for Star Wars. And I just wish I knew what those characters wanted because I still don't. It's, I know it's a mystery that you're teasing that you want multiple seasons, but, and this is not Dave Fellini's fault, but because we will never see this actor play this role again, it, it, it's a little bit of a tragedy. It does make me really sad. And so my main takeaway from, season, from Ahsoka season one was I was deeply, deeply sad. And it still makes me sad today. I'm even tearing up just thinking about it, that we're never going to see this actor. And I'm never going to know what Ray Stevenson's portrayal of Balin, what that character actually wanted. I mean, he's, he said power, but specifically he's hunting something on this planet. It likely has to do, you mentioned the Mortis gods, which is a character arc from, uh, so, I'm sorry, from the Clone Wars, where Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka meet these three force gods. It's just, it bums me out. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. And, you know, he spoke to, in talking about power beyond what you've ever imagined, he talked about something almost reminiscent of Daenerys's break the wheel speech from Game of Thrones, this sense of, like the constant cycle between empire and rebellion and resistance and first order that we all know as Star Wars fans, the constant battle between good and evil really being uh, a cycle where one rises as another falls and then something rises in its place. He spoke about really wanting to change that cycle or break that cycle. And that was really exciting to hear from a mysterious character. And there were so many branches that his journey could have taken and while i'm excited to see what they do with the character in the future it is really tragic that we're not going to see that from ray stevenson because it was just such a beautiful performance and really uh intriguing and compelling so i agree with you i mean i there's only without knowing it there's only one way that i can read it with the name balin being the ultimate hint if you aren't aware if you've been living under a rock and haven't been googling ahsoka you, if you've done any of that, you probably know this already, but if you haven't done any uh, additional uh, online conversation about it, the name Balin and Shin is very telling. These are representatives of Norse mythology, and Balin chases, uh, Balin and Shin, they are wolves, 
that they chase the sun and the moon through the sky, and that's what keeps the sun and the moon moving. And in Ragnarok, Balin will catch them and devour them, and that will be the end of all things. And Ragnarok is the ending story of the Norse mythology. It is kicked off by a lot of things, the death of Baldir, um, by the hands of Loki, the war with the gods, Loki's children returning, but ultimately ends with the sun and this and the um, the sun and the moon being eaten, creating a winter apocalypse by which Loki rallies the frost giants and all of the gods and the frost giants kill themselves in an epic battle. But notably, Ragnarok ends where it began, right? So Ragnarok in the mythology typically is a cyclical arc. It is something that is coming and that has already happened. It's prophesied and it's history. So at the end of the Ragnarok cycle, Ask and Embla are once again created from the ash and elm tree, the, the first man and woman. So that, again, speaks to the cycle of good and evil, the rising of one power and the falling of another, even if Balin is able to achieve what he's looking for, can he ever really break the cycle if it lives in this uh, truly circular mythology? If we take the Ragnarok myth, and you are 100% correct, at the end there is hope that life re anew will occur and that the cycle may repeat, but there will still be life. Um, if we take the Ragnarok myth, Balin is probably trying to destroy the galaxy. And if he destroys the galaxy... If he is successful in that, if the bad guys get to win, because Ragnarok, the bad guys get to win, the good guys all die, the bad guys get to win, there would then be a rebirth out of that destruction. So he reboots the Star Wars universe into Battlestar Galactica, right? Is that what's going to happen? <laughs> you heard it here first, I ladies and gentlemen. I wouldn't hate it, man. The droids are not treated well in this in this universe. Yeah. Oh, you know, and speaking of droids, I, I just want to point out, you know, there were a lot of little things that I loved in the season. I loved the the Noti or the Naughty, the little turtle hobbits, the crab hobbits. I loved them so, so much. But also my probably favorite character in this series was Hu Yang. And again, I don't have the Clone Wars background or the Rebels background to have seen the character before, but David Tennant always putting on a miraculous performance. And truly, this is one of my favorite droids I've ever seen in Star Wars. You got to hold this uh, solid space for, uh, you know, 3PO and R2. But Hu Yang was such a really powerful and interesting force who had this tenderness and this insight and this thousands of years of history and legend that was stored up in his databases. So I really loved that use of the droid being this kind of storehouse of Jedi wisdom and also bringing so much to the relationship between Ahsoka and uh, Sabine. You know, one of the things that, that also is an issue with this show is that the relationship between Ahsoka and Sabine is very much implied. It's all stuff that happened offstage that none of us saw happen, but the, the thing that tied it together for me and that made it meaningful was the commentary and the relationship with Hu Yang. I completely agree with that. Just in general, when Star Wars, when they write a droid character, they're always a smash hit. So R2-D2, C-3PO, BB-8, Hu Yang. Um, IG-11. IG-11. Uh, what's, the, what's the droid from Rogue One? I don't Tudyk. remember, but Alan it's, Tudyk it's Alan Tudyk's character. Yeah, we're... we're 
we're, we're going to get slammed for this, but I don't remember. Yeah. Something 88. Yeah. We have a computer. We could Google it, but you know, that will ruin our flow. But yes, he was like the best character. One of the best characters yeah. in Rogue One. I call blanking on his name right now. I'm a terrible Star Wars fan. Please don't at me at Twitter or at me. I don't care. I can take it. I'm tough. Anyway, um, in general, they do droid characters really, really well um, throughout all of Star Wars. Hu Yang. I mean, it, David Tennant's always a win. When was a thing that you watched that David Tennant was in where David Tennant wasn't one of, if not the best things? I'll wait, people. It has never happened. David Tennant's a win. Super fan there. You know, he is phenomenal in everything he does all the time. All that being stated, I wanted to break down or at least talk about, in terms of symbolic language, what I thought was the best episode. And that is the episode after Balin pushes Ahsoka off a cliff. We don't know if she's alive. And she confronts Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader, and they go in through their past. I'd like to talk a little bit about that episode specifically, if that's cool with you. Absolutely. This is what Dave Fellini does the best. He does the best when he deals in myth and symbol, and he relates it to galactic politics. He has a gift of doing that that I think is even better than George Lucas, who is also awesome at that. You know, when the original Star Wars trilogy, we did a whole series decoding the symbolic language. And George Lucas had the gift of using myth and symbols to talk about contemporary politics. And in many ways, this episode is the best episode, in my opinion. And one of the issues with the show is that it peaked really early. After that, it's like everything didn't feel as awesome as that episode did. In Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, he talks a lot about the, the journey of the hero in what's called the monomyth. This is his theory that every religious story, every religious myth, and most contemporary narratives all share a connective tissue called the journey that the hero goes through. He talks about the, the, the transition from the non-hero to the hero as ego-destroying meaning the non-heroic self must die and the heroic self must be born. He also talks about the importance of water and water being the symbol of the character going from the conscious to the unconscious realm. In our New Hope episode, we talk about this in the trash compactor scene. This is very similar in that, that same symbolic language. We have a hero losing, right? We have a hero failing, failing to train Sabine, failing to stop Balin, failing to stop Thrawn, failing to in import the importance of sacrificing your own personal desires for the good of the mission is what she's trying to teach Sabine, which she fails at. Sabine doesn't fail that, pass that test, doesn't learn that lesson. Hu Yang says stay together and they instantly separate. So we have our hero at a lowest point in an actual ocean and submerges. And where does she go? Now there's a lot of debate about where Ahsoka literally is in that episode. I'm going to submit that that is the wrong question to it's, ask. It's just kind of irrelevant. Yeah, it doesn't matter where she physically is. Is she in the world between worlds? Is she in that? Maybe down the line in seasons two and three, it might matter where she physically went there. But for the sake of killing the non-heroic for the heroic to re be reborn, it's irrelevant. So let's assume she is in the subconscious mind. She retreats into herself. How this could manifest in the show is irrelevant to she has magic powers. So 
We don't need to get bogged down into the details. In that, what does she have to do? And whether she literally sees Anakin or not, she has to confront the tension between wartime Ahsoka and Jedi Ahsoka. She has to reconcile the tension of the trauma of being a child soldier. Something that has not been fleshed out yet. The fact that children were sent into war with Jedis and the scar that that left on her and the hurt that she has experienced because of that. Clone troopers that had died and she has to look Darth Vader in the eyes and she has to confront him. And the way she is reborn out of this is by choosing not to fight him, is by choosing to be a Jedi, is by choosing the way of peace. And she emerges from this as Ahsoka the White. So remember, ego de destroying, the non-Ahsoka the White, the Ahsoka the Grey has to die so the Ahsoka the White can be reborn and that she can then go out and be the hero. And, in, and everything from Ahsoka after that was an Ahsoka that trusted the Force. Before then was Ahsoka trying to manipulate the Force. After that, she resigns herself to her fate, trusts in the Force, and ultimately this is the Ahsoka I need to see going forward. This is the Ahsoka that is going to be the hopefully the foil to Thrawn. You know, Thrawn who's so meticulous, every detail is planned, every philosophy and piece of artwork and and every battle strategy is committed to study and scrutiny, and he's one step above everyone versus now Ahsoka the White, who trusts in the Force. Right, and it's also this intensely therapeutic journey of forgiveness, too. You mentioned earlier that Ahsoka still carries this guilt of potentially being the reason that Anakin turned to the dark side, and if not the reason, then at least a contributing factor. She is so haunted by Anakin's turn and every time she has faced him since or faced the memory of him it has been dramatic and so to reconcile with him in this kind of dream journey is really cathartic for her and also you know big hand for Hayden Christensen stepping back into this role and really proving that he he has the chops to portray this really conflicted character. It's been exciting to see him back in the universe. You mentioned Ahsoka being reborn as Ahsoka the White. And one of the things that is so compelling or exciting or stirring about this show is how much it heavily plays on the Lord of the Rings. Uh, speaking of heroes' journeys and these classic mythic medieval texts that really echo with us and resonate with us, we have Ahsoka journeying into kind of the deeper, more difficult parts of herself, facing an enemy who, whose allegiances are ambiguous, much like Saruman, and then falling into a great chasm and being reborn as, uh, as the white, like Gandalf. So that's that lovely little parallel there. There are so many things on Peridia that echo pieces of the Lord of the Rings, like the great statues of the Mortis gods, very much feeling like the remnants of Numenor and the ages past. So it, it's constantly referencing that. I mentioned earlier that the, the Nadi or the Noti are very much like hobbits, these nomadic um, 
creatures who who have their own little shire. They even dress kind of like hobbits. It's really cute. And then they welcome people into their world that's very humble uh, in, in this sort of fairy tale realm. And while you loved that episode that takes place in um, Ahsoka's dream journey the most, I adored that episode, but I sort of wish like there had been four more episodes on Peridia. There was so, so much that was exciting about this new Star Wars universe or this new Star Wars galaxy that is potentially the place where all the Jedi legends and all the legends and fairy tales that are told in our recognizable Star Wars galaxy originate. That is so exciting to me. And so I'm sure we're going to get a lot of that in season two. But I was like, oh, man, if we hadn't spent the first four episodes trying to get here, it would be so cool to spend some time exploring the remnants of this legendary galaxy. Absolutely. I mean, Balin calls Peridia the, the land of fairy tales. And it really does have this great symbolic, mythic, fairy tale, ancient feel to it. I mean, it has three witches casting evil spells, raising the dead. And that, that is a direct result of the Dave Fellini style. This is the stuff that he likes. He wants the force to be magical and weird and mystical. He wants there to be lots of different ways for it to be used. He wants us to go to places we haven't seen before and interact with things that are comfortable and familiar in their symbolic language. Nothing narratively we haven't really seen in other stories, but also completely new and fresh for Star Wars. And he gets that balance better than anyone since George Lucas quite frankly, and in any other Star Wars stories. This is the stuff that I'm ultimately here for the most. And his character is Ahsoka. So I 100% agree with everything that you said. Peridia was just phenomenally cool. And it was really expertly well told. Um, I want to transition, if that's okay, or did you have another point to that? Well, I wanted to throw you a little bit of a boomerang. Would you allow that? I would welcome that. Give me this boomerang. So I've been thinking about how this place, Peridia, very much feels like the opposite of midichlorians, right? If we're talking about ways in which the force can be represented, you can get really nitty gritty, really granular, and really specific in talking about how there are these microorganisms that live in the universe, and some of us have more of them than others, and that's what make us strong in the force. Or you can kind of surrender to the magic and the mystery of it all, which I think for me and a lot of Star Wars fans is a compelling thing about the Force. And Peridia feels like a place where the Force is powerful and significant for magical, mysterious reasons, right? So my kind of question for you, we've seen places and spaces that are hotspots of the Force, either the light side or the dark side, or typically both. We've seen planets where the Force is powerful. We've seen... Um, swamps and caves where the, the force is especially powerful. As someone who, you know, reads a lot of Stephen King and place having memory and feeling is important, what do you think about place and its relationship to the force? And it's a big question, so you don't have to have an answer fleshed out. But I think that is rooted in many ways how the ancients saw the world and told their stories. The ancients believed that there were thresholds that you could cross 
and upon crossing that threshold would be in a different realm and there things would be different. Whether that threshold was a border between one ancient people and another and in one ancient people, those gods protected it and once in the next realm, the other gods were there to protect it. Whether that was crossing the threshold into the temple um, to worship the Moving said god. Moving from profane into sacred space or so on, yeah. And in almost every ancient myth that we had that has survived has a hero that must step out of a threshold into a new in order to become the hero in order to uh to to take their mantle into the world and so the idea that a certain place can attract would be powerful to a certain type of mythic force mythic energy whether it be spirits gods angels demons whatever mythic language we want to put into that um, is very prevalent in lots of ancient stories. You know, think of going back to the Norse and going back to the water. Think of Odin needing wisdom, seeking out Uncle Mimir, going to Uncle Mimir's well, a place where the, the wisdom lives within the water and demanding a sacrifice for him to be reborn wise. And what does he do? He leaves his eye in the pool he drinks the water from the horn and thus is the wisest God ever. It is the place, the well, where the wisdom is really drawn from and is the drinking of the water that imbibes the person with said wisdom. And very much Odin needs a sacrifice to be reborn as the wisest God. The sacrifice is his eye. Uh, you know, Ahsoka needs a sacrifice to be reborn as the white. The sacrifice is Sabine, who must be given to the enemy. And so she can be reborn the white. And ultimately she is successful in redeeming her apprentice, which was not, I didn't know if that was going to happen or not. I thought there was a chance Sabine could have fallen to the dark side in this story. I think eventually Sabine falls to the dark side. That's where this is leading, right? She forms the Knights of Ren. It's got to be that, right? It could be. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. I do not know. But all of that being, being stated, the idea that a place can be special, it can be different, it can it can imbibe people with powers, knowledge, gifts. Think of again with the water, King Arthur getting the the sword from the Lady of the Lake. So this mythic being emerges from the water to give him what he needs to go out there and become the the one true king of Britain. You know, so there's so many stories where the place is what matters. And, and you hit the nail on the head all throughout Star Wars. That theme does exist, uh, pops up from time to time. Not so much in the prequels, you know, but in the sequel trilogy, you certainly get the sense that, you know, we see a bunch of different layers for Kylo Ren where he channels the Force. You've got Octo, which has, you know, Luke's access to the Jedi Temple, but then it has that underbelly of the dark side, just like Dagobah had the dark side cave. You have Exegol, which is all dark side energy, you know? So like there is still this connection um, between the place and crossing the threshold to the place, changing the way the narrative goes through the, the energy, whether that's the force, whether it's an ancient deity or spirit, whatever it is, that is absolutely a, a, a thing. Yeah, absolutely. That, that exists within so many of our narratives and so many of our myths and legends. Yeah, I think when you talk about threshold too, that really coalesces it for me because liminality is so important to magic, so important to fairy tales, so important to any story of magical creatures or beasts or fairies or 
so on and so forth. So and, that and was an awesome answer. It's also important to us in our day-to-day -day practical lives. So I'll give you a concrete example of that. Laurel and I, since we had moved out of the city into the suburbs, have become gardeners. We did not realize that the front porch would be our sacred place. But we had, we just today, we outfitted the summer into the fall and can't wait to sit among our fall flowers. And that's a place where you and I are, we relax, we get to bond with each other. It lowers your blood pressure and puts you into this good place. And that is us taking a place and transforming its energy that we can feel. So I think that is a lesson that can exist even to today, that you can go to a place and it can, it can have a profound impact on you. You know, many religious people today, they go to whether it's a temple, yeah. mosque, or church, and that is the place that they get transported. So I think that is still an important, I think it's in so many stories because it's a fundamental human need to find a place that you can feel rejuvenated and not in like, because you take a nap, you feel rejuvenated. Rejuvenated in a more spiritual sense and less concretely, um, ontologically, verifiably able to prove sense. Awesome. Yeah, well, maybe you feel rejuvenated when you take a nap, but when I wake up from a nap, I'm like, what planet am I on? Anyway, thank you so much for indulging that um, that boomerang. That was a really awesome answer, and I appreciated it. Thank you. Yeah, let's talk a little bit. Let's transition. Let's talk about Star Wars now in the Disney era. It's undoubtedly different. The current media landscape is one where companies want bankable IP, intellectual property, and they want to produce a lot. So the idea is give the fans what they want, give them a lot of it, and don't stop. Command their attention in the attention economy and profits will follow. Star Wars is not different from that model, right? So Star Wars is part of the model. Disney is part of that model. They want you to put the Disney Plus app on and never take it off. And because of that, we've gotten a lot of Star Wars. We've gotten six movies. I mean, the three original movies were the only three movies for, what, 25, 30 years? Then we got three sequels. And since Disney has taken over, we've gotten six movies. We've gotten uh, The Clone Wars Show, Rebels, The Bad Batch. There's Tales of the Jedi. There's, I forget the name of the show, but there's a Star Wars show for toddlers that my son calls Tiny Jedi. That's not the name of it, but we have Tiny Jedi. I think Jedi. it's called Young Jedi. Young yeah. Jedi, he calls Young it Jedi Tiny Adventures. Jedi. Young Jedi Adventures, yeah. So there's Tiny Jedi. Um, in terms of streaming shows, there's been three seasons of The Mandalorian, one season of Book of Boba Fett, there's been Andor, there's been Obi-Wan, Obi and now there's been Ahsoka. There's going to be a, a Mandalorian season four, uh, undoubtedly. I don't know. I think there is also going to be an Andor season two. I think that's been confirmed. If I'm wrong, internet, fact check me. Undoubtedly, there's going to be an Ahsoka season two. I imagine that was probably one of the more popular ones of them all. And then it looks like all of this is headed for a culmination in a Dave Filoni Mandoverse movie, which a lot of people are suggesting is going to be called Heir to the Empire. So it's going to wrap together all of these stories that take place in the same time period, bring yeah. these characters together in an Avengers-style team-up to take on Thrawn. You know, so there's... Yeah, so it's going to be a super movie with Boba Fett, The Mandalorian, Ahsoka, Ezra, Grogu, Hera, yeah. Grogu, you know, Jason, Luke Skywalker should probably be there, maybe Leia too. Leia, yeah. You know, so it, it. my question to you is is multifaceted. 
First, how do you feel about Star Wars now and that it is a content farm? And two, does it matter? So I'm going to take a pretty optimistic perspective on this because, sure, they're in, in Star Wars becoming a factory where it's all about churning out content so that you can get eyeballs, so that you can get streams, you can get clicks, you can get subscription dollars. Like that, that generally is going to crank out some stuff that is not excellent or it's going to dilute the power of what is excellent. But it has also produced some pretty wonderful stuff. Andor was really an extraordinary piece of television. You and I have a very lot of love for Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm a little bit lukewarm on The Mandalorian, but in general, I like it. Yeah, Boba Fett, whatever. And Ahsoka, I'm really hopeful about. So the Disney Plus era, I think, has had generally more wins than losses or it's a wash. My feeling, though, on the future of Star Wars is how can it be bad if we can get more of a plurality of voices into a pop culture universe that is beloved and has so much potential? I am an advocate for strong creative voices with strong vision telling new stories, but I don't think there's harm in telling new stories within an existing universe. I think there is tremendous potential to flesh out some of the things people love and to create wacky, completely unexpected things in a universe that is already beloved. The fact that we're seeing a new galaxy and that we're getting this deep mythological take on how the force works and the legends of the galaxy we recognize that inform centuries of galactic politics. That feels really good to me and really, really exciting. So I recognize that not everything is going to be great, and I recognize that behind this machine there is a whole lot of like cartoon people with dollar signs for eyes, but I also think they are bringing in important creative voices like Dave Filoni, like I don't know where things stand with Taika Waititi, but he also had a lot to do with The Mandalorian, so I think he can bring quite a lot of interesting nuance to Star Wars. I love the idea of seeing a more, um, a more imaginative take on this universe going forward and saying what are the, how can we stretch the limits of this limitless galaxy? That's really well said. I... I'll give like two concrete examples of how I feel. In no world, if Derek were in charge of the Star Wars things, which I'm not qualified for and not saying I would do a better job than those that are, but if I were, where I would greenlight the Bad Batch. You know, like, they, were, they had a little arc in, in Clone Wars. They were fun. It's like, but that's not a story that needs to be told. But then you pause and think, what did the Empire do with their clones? Oh boy, there's a story here. Now there's the story of what the Empire did with their clones. And it's phenomenal. You know, like season one, like a lot of these things, season one, I thought like, okay, potential, some I didn't, wasn't into then. And then season two, and I'm like, bring on season three. I can't wait to see it. And then furthermore, you mentioned Andor. Do I need in the universe with magical space wizards, battling over good for evil, like a gritty 
spy thriller about the start of the rebellion. We had rebels. So we got to see the start of the rebellion from that side. We got to see the rebellion in the original trilogy. And we got a kind of a already a gritty version of that in rogue one. Like, why would we turn that into a whole show? Was Andor that interesting of a character Cassian Andor that, that we should do a whole show. And then my goodness, yes, we absolutely needed that. So it, it was uh, arguably the best thing Star Wars has done in a long time um, from uh, a critical lens of telling a mature adult story. So there, to, to your point, yeah, you can bring in these other voices and things like that, and they can tell these different types of stories. And that is cool. I'm a Star Wars super fan. In two weeks, I'm getting a Star Wars tattoo. Five years ago yesterday, we had a Star Wars wedding. We had a Star Wars-themed wedding. I have a lightsaber, and I'm actually pretty good at it because I practice my lightsaber moves. I, If I'm home alone and Arthur's asleep and there's nothing that I want to watch because most of the time, something new I watch with Laurel and I, you better believe I'm putting a Star Wars thing on that I've seen a thousand times. You know, so like you went out to dinner with one of your girlfriends once Arthur is asleep. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, let me pick a prequel movie and rewatch it. You know, like that's how much I love star Wars. And yet I don't think star Wars really matters anymore. Interesting. I think star Wars has become, let me say this. Let me caveat that there is a subjective an objective way to look at this. From a subjective perspective, Star Wars can matter to anyone any way they want. There's no right or wrong way to Star Wars. There's a lot of conversations among Star Wars fans where they get the digital quote-unquote knives out, fighting each other over the, the, the correct way to watch or the correct opinion to have. Oh, you love Book of Boba Fett, so you're an idiot. Oh, you love the prequels, so you suck. Oh, you love Rise of Skywalker, you're dumb. You think... Uh, the Last Jedi was a triumph. Well, you have terrible taste and I hate you. There's a lot of that in the Star Wars community. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. Star Wars fan the way you want a Star Wars fan. I will never, ever be a diehard Mandalorian fan. I like, not, not the show, just the concept of the Mandalorians. I like the Mandalorians, but I'm never going to be super invested in everything Mandalore. To some people, the Mandalorians is their favorite part of Star Wars. And that's awesome celebrating you do it your way. I want to, I don't want to see blasters. I want to see lightsabers. That's just my opinion. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. That being stated, as we pause and reflect in this moment of critical media consumers, consumers of movies and TV, I feel that we have gotten to the point where fan pandering is not working as well. It just doesn't land the same as it did 25 years ago when this when this machine really started 20 some years ago with like MCU really pandering to the fans. I'm at the point now where I'm wondering what happened. We can't live in a world where all of the media is Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible. No, of course not. We can't live in that world where that's all that ever gets made. Something needs to change. We as consumers also, I think, need to change. 
it is amazing watching Dave Fellini pander to me, but I'm a 42-year-old man. I can handle things out of my comfort zone, and I want more of that. I want less Star Wars. I would take less Star Wars at higher quality than more Star Wars. And I think there's just too much of it right now. And I think that's true of a lot of things that we have been consuming. There's too much Marvel, you know, and I think we're at a point where it, you said it dilutes it. To me, I would say that's a probably a, a more intelligent way to say it. I would just say it's less special. It's less special when every few months there's a new Star Wars thing. It doesn't mean as much. And it becomes more about, if there's one sin in season one, is that it's trying so hard to please the Rebels fans. And in so doing, it doesn't tell the right stories at times. It doesn't tell the stories. I shouldn't say that. That's not true. That's a weird, weird statement. Strike that. It doesn't really take its time to tell the story that could be there because it really wants to make sure it is making the Rebels fans happy. We've got to have Hera. We've got to have Jason. We've got to have Thrawn. There must be Night Sisters. There's got to be zombie troopers. You know, there's got to be Purgles in it. There's got to be Sabine. Sabine's got to be a Jedi. Uh, they've got to find Ezra. And, and, and all of the good in that show, I could have used a whole Ahsoka season one, which is what the heck happened to Ahsoka and Sabine. That story is just told and not shown. I could have used, you know, one of the things that this show doesn't do well is balancing the mystical and the geopolitics. How does it work? Who controls the army? How are they sent? To, how is Hera, who, Hera is it a, does she report to senators? Does she report to a commander in chief? Is it all by a council? And Dave Fellini has shown in previous things he's written that he can get that really right. Balancing the mystical and the political. And this one, the scenes with Hera talking to Mon Mothma and everything felt like a totally different show. Didn't belong. And it, it, and it was all felt contrived. You know, because we knew exactly how the Jedi Order worked in the Clone Wars. We knew exactly how they interacted with the Senate. We knew exactly how that process broke apart. It, we've actually even seen this in The Mandalorian. You know, and the book of Boba Fett, we've seen how the politics of the New Republic is failing. And this one just, like, it just it had to throw that in there because we needed C-3PO to mention Leia's name. And I don't need C-3PO to mention Leia's name. I don't need that. I need you to tell me a great story, one that will resonate and that will matter. And it's not Dave Fellini as the writer that I think gets it wrong. It's the structure of the incentives. Because... Dave Fellini is a better Star Wars writer than I could ever hope to be. He's like a hero of mine. So this is not, Dave Fellini, you suck, why'd you do this? This is, hey, these things are done because the studio system and the streaming system necessitates that they do that. Otherwise, uh, it may not be as successful. And then lo and behold, Star Wars fans are still going to rip it to shreds anyway. Because that's what a whole host of Star Wars fans like to do. They like to hate it. I don't know why. It makes no sense. It's so dumb. But the Star Wars fandom does enjoy hating on Star Wars. So that's going to happen anyway. And so I feel that where we're at now, where the business of making 
movies and TV now is they have made them all less important. They've made them matter less. And I really think that needs to change. Well said. All right. Well, I don't want to end on a bummer. Yeah. So let's end on something positive. Tell me your favorite thing about Star Wars. And it can be anything you want from any era of Star Wars that we have not talked about yet. Oh my God. Anything ever? It doesn't have to be favorite. Just something you really love about Star Wars. Okay. You know what I love about Star Wars? I love every incarnation that Yoda has taken and has been both wizened mentor, trickster, um, warrior, council member. I love that this weird little green guy who is a Muppet that Luke underestimated has played every possible archetype within his, uh, his time, his tenure in the Star Wars galaxy. I love that. And you know what moment is sticking out for me right now for Yoda? And I'm again going to harp on The Last Jedi. When Yoda comes back as a force ghost and says to Luke, I'm going to massacre this. But he says, uh, failure of the greatest teacher is. And then he says, we are what they grow beyond. And The true burden of all the masters. The true burden of all masters. That, I think, is one of those beautiful lessons from Star Wars that we can take into this conversation that we've just had that like Dave Filoni is kind of the Padawan of George Lucas and he has tried to grow something new and maybe he hasn't gone beyond what, uh, what George Lucas did with the original trilogy, but he did create Ahsoka. He did build this uh, beautiful, powerful arc for a character who a lot of people, not just you have identified as one of the greatest star Wars characters of all time. So we are what they grow beyond. I want to just point out something that made its rounds on on Twitter or X or whatever the heck we got to call it now um, that really made me happy, and it's about Star Wars fans doing something great. Uh, Hayden Christensen, who played Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader in the original trilogy, got way more hate online than he deserved. A lot of the, the, the poor acting slash in that had to do with George Lucas has never been great at writing dialogue. Yeah, it's bad dialogue. And what are you going to do with those lines? And Natalie Portman was bad in that because she I, couldn't choke down those lines. And not only that, George Lucas, who's a phenomenal director, is not known for getting the greatest performances from his actors. It's just not to criticize him. It's just a fact. And since he has come back as Darth Vader in the streaming and Anakin Skywalker, we've seen what a truly marvelous actor he, he is. And he did a panel where, oh God, I'm going to get misty eyed. Aww. He did a panel where all of the fans gave him a standing ovation and started chanting, we love you, Hayden. And he cried. That's so sweet. And I just like, I love that moment for him as a human, that he's finally getting his due, that the fans are embracing him as Anakin, and that we've gotten to the point where the prequels are no longer knives out. Let's stab each other over whether we like them or not. And we just allow the prequels to be the prequels. And I'm a prequel apologist. I always will be. Um, that being stated, that that's just a great Star Wars moment. And I'm really happy for that actor getting much due overdue love and much overdue uh, respect. Awesome. So prequel apologist, should we talk about the prequels next on The Midnight Myth? 
I mean, I would love to. Yeah. I would love to talk about the prequels. All right. We want to do a prequel rewatch. I think we should. So do are we going to do all three and do one episode on all three, or do you want to do each? One per yeah, movie. Let's, let's do one per movie. All right, prequels. you know, I've got some theories. You have some theories on the yeah, prequels. and I'm very excited to talk about them. And I'm going to watch some of the best lightsaber battles ever filmed. Awesome. Filmed in quotes, because it's there's no film in that. <laughs> all right, anyone, this was a lot of fun. Hopefully didn't bum anyone out. Can't wait to see more of what happens in Ahsoka. And until next time, see you.